Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right, good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall and I'm with my co-host this morning, Bruce Weiner. Good morning, Bruce. Good morning, Rachel. Um, as we start this broadcast um, for these advantages, I think I really want people to, to realize that this is just a financial vehicle. Um, there's many financial vehicles out there. And what we're going to try to focus on today is that we're going to focus on the advantages of whole life insurance. But I want people then to start comparing and contrasting that with all the other types of financial vehicles, whether you're comparing it to checking accounts, uh, savings accounts, CDs, money markets, mutual funds, uh, retirement accounts, your home, businesses, pension funds, so on and so forth. And I think that'll help you follow along very easily with us. Bruce, I love that you said that because it the question always comes down to compared to what, right? I mean, you can't just have something that's great well, what about something else? Could something else be better? Or could something else do that job more efficiently? And the one thing that I have found in my own financial life and in every client's life that we talk to is that whole life insurance has tremendous benefits that allow it to provide efficiency in many different areas of your life. And that's one of the reasons why it's such a valuable tool as a foundation of your wealth creation system. And so Today, we're going to just go ahead and highlight these seven advantages. But first, where does this conversation fit in the big picture? Because ultimately, you don't just want a financial product. Even if it is a really awesome financial product, any tool, even whole life insurance, is not an end-all, be-all, one thing that you need and you're done creating everything that you wanted in your financial life. So really, the goal is to create time and money freedom. And what does that even mean? That means you're on this path to figuring out a way to replace your income with assets or have passive income or asset-based income. And on the way to doing that, you want to keep as much of the money that you make as possible. That means that you have more cash flow, more money that's going into the bucket of investable income or savings and investing. After you're keeping as much of your money as possible, then you want to be in a position where you are protecting that money and you're putting all of your, your legal and your insurance tools in place to make sure that you're protecting the wealth that you've created. And then you want to figure out how to invest that. Now, anything with life insurance is going to fit in that middle component, that protection element of your cash flow system. And so just a little bit of context for you as we jump into this conversation. Now, let's go ahead and jump into the advantages of life insurance. And really what happens is that if you want to get a tool that is going to do as many jobs for you as possible, you're thinking about multiplying the use of your money or, or having it multitask for you. And that's one thing that is really powerful about whole life insurance. So let's go ahead and talk about what is the number one advantage of whole life insurance. And I would say that it is vault-like safety. Now, what do we mean by vault-like safety? Bruce, do you want to go ahead and share a little bit about life insurance and its safety? Correct. Um, the thing that's different, if we want to compare it to a bank, uh, banks practice what's called fractional reserve banking, which means they only have to, by law, now some of them have actually higher reserve requirements than, than this, but by law, they only have to have 
of the money that they have promised to their uh, depositors uh, in the actual bank itself. Um, and they can lend, lend out the other 90%. But in life insurance, because they have a promise made into the future, they must actually have more money in reserve than they have promised in the future. So just from that simple explanation there, you can see that uh, life insurance companies have a lot more safety because if things were to turn south, they already have the reserves. This is what happened in our uh, recession in 2008, and actually what also what happened in the Great Depression, where people were trying to get money um, because of the financial crisis, and the banks didn't have this. I've actually experienced this myself mm. uh, before where I went to the bank and I tried to simply get out $5,000 of cash on a Thursday afternoon. And they told me uh, they couldn't give it to me. And I said, what do you mean you can't give it to me? I said, well, we don't mm. have 5000 You have to order that the day before. And I said, you don't have $5,000 in the bank? And they said, well, yeah, we have 5000 but we can't, we can't get that to you because we'll – We'll go below our reserves. And that was a little disconcerting because, oh, first sure. of all, you, you find out quickly that that's not your money. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's not. You become a, when, you, when you deposit money in a bank, you become a creditor to the bank. Uh, it actually becomes mm -hmm. their money. A lot of people don't know that also. You've made that in the agreement. So, right, because what, you're transferring the control. Now that they have it correct. in their vault, if you will, now they use that to create additional income, but they're using, they have use and control of that money. And so, yes, you do need permission to get it back, <laughs> specifically as in your case. Correct. And um, I didn't have permission, apparently. And so the, I, I was able to get it the next day. Um, but with a life insurance company, that once again, they, they cannot practice fractional reserve they have to have more money in reserve because they have contracts that they have to pay off in the future. So mm -hmm. insurance companies are extremely safe. They have extremely low failure rates. And even in the cases that where uh, uh, an insurance company may become um, lower in their uh, re reserve requirements or become closer to insolvency, before that actually happens, there's a couple things that people need to know. People wonder about FDIC, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, for the banks. And yes, there is such a thing, but the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, if you look it up on their website, they only have, um, last I checked, about one and a quarter percent of all the demand deposits. So they don't even have enough to cover, they only have enough to cover one and a quarter percent of all the demand deposits. That's fascinating. Say, and I believe as well that with the FDIC, if you had your bank collapse, I believe that they insure your deposit up to, isn't it like 250000 250000 yeah. So it doesn't uh, mean if you had $5 million in the bank and that bank failed that you could get access to all $5 million. Correct. And that is one of the strategies we talk about with people uh, spreading their money around. Uh, but people say, well, that's okay because it's insured by the government. The government virtually would just print more money. Now, if we did have major failures, yes, they would just print more money, more IOUs, but as you've learned in our podcast before, that simply just devalues money. So yes, you have money, but the money's worth a lot less. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but um, this, the insurance in, uh, industry has the same thing. It's called a state guaranteed association. So anybody that does uh, insurance 
uh, in a state, you have to pay into the state guarantee association. And mm -hmm. so they will actually work uh, very similar to uh, FDIC. The other thing that happens in the insurance industry, however, is because these are contracts, insurance uh, companies in the past have gone in and actually bought these contracts from the insurance companies, and they do it for two reasons. One is they would like the insurance agency, the uh, industry, excuse me, the insurance industry not to get a black eye. It doesn't happen very often, mm -hmm. but when, it, when there are some uh, insolvencies, other insurance companies come in and buy out these contracts. They do that so it doesn't get a black eye, but the other reason they do it, it makes a, it makes a lot of good business sense because most of the acquisition costs in an insurance contract is upfront. That means they have to check out the person's health, they have to design the products, they have to pay the insurance producers, their commissions, so on and so forth. So once those contracts are out there and seasoned, there's virtually very little cost to retain in them. So it makes good business sense for insurance companies to go in and purchase those contracts from them. So there's a very, 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 very low uh, failure rate in that situation. And Bruce, I'll say something really quick about that as well. There's, if you, and we'll post these links in the show notes, not necessarily on Facebook, but in the show notes, once this comes out as a podcast and an article on our website on the money advantage. But there is, if you look at the, the number of banks that failed within a time frame of, of about 2008 until about 2017, I think these are those statistics that we have the number of banks that failed was tremendous compared to the number of life insurance companies that failed. And I think, I mean, I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I don't want to misspeak, but it's on the tune of, I mean, it's, it's like a hundred times more in yes. terms of the banks that failed. And so yes. what's really interesting about that is that the life insurance companies that did go under had some, either they were um, very small companies, they were regional companies, they had low ratings, which is really important because there's a rating system for life insurance companies. And that's why we advocate doing business only with good, well-rated companies. I guess good rated is a, a improper English there, but really you want to have a insurance company with a high Comdex, Comdex score. That's on the range of zero to a hundred. You want to have at least 80 or better. You want to be in a position where you have, there's a, a letter grade rating as well with Fitch's and, um, there's Moody's. also Moody's and there's AM Best as well. So those ratings, you want to have an A minus or better. And when you're looking at companies that did fail, life insurance companies that failed, they were poorly capitalized and they were companies that had really low ratings. And so you can circumvent that and prevent that from happening in your situation by making sure that you do business with great companies. Yeah. And then the, the final thing I think when we talk about safety is, uh, these are contracts. And so when I always tell people, when they say guaranteed cash in our society, contracts are the backbone of our society. So mm -hmm. when they say guaranteed uh, cash value, death benefit and, and premium uh, amount, a, a plethora of lawyers would have had to go through this and approve these for to be able to use the word guarantee. Oh, right. Because there's almost no cases besides the guarantees of whole life insurance that you can say the word guaranteed and not have legal ramifications. I mean, in the financial world. In the financial world, yes. So go ahead, Bruce. So I think that's a, a really important thing, a distinction, a distinction to make. You're never mm -hmm. going to see, you're never going to see the word guaranteed in, in uh, 
a mutual fund, a stock, a bond, um, any kind of other alternative investments. So that's why we always say these are not investments. These are a savings vehicle. Or because a place to store cash. Correct. And that is why uh, the distinction should always be made. And we're going to actually going to get into this the very next uh, point is that we are not comparing these to what people think is an investment because an investment actually has no guarantees in them. Yes. This is actually a place, a vault-like safety place to store cash. Yes, and just on the contract piece, you have guaranteed cash value built into the policy. You also have a guaranteed death benefit. You also have a guaranteed premium, meaning your premium is not going to increase beyond the level that is stated in the contract. So there's a lot of guarantees on all fronts, how much money you're putting into the policy and then how much you're going to have access to and how much will pay out when you do pass away. And so that's another reason why there's so much safety inside of a whole life insurance contract. Now, advantage number two is that you're going to get competitive growth on your cash value. And I want to be really clear here, and Bruce, you said this just a second ago, this is, again, a place to store cash. And the rates that you get inside of a life insurance policy, specifically a specially designed whole life insurance policy, are very good compared to other comparable tools, which will be other places to store cash. So again, we're not comparing to investments. We're comparing to things like the bank um, savings or checking account, the mutual, um, sorry, not mutual fund, the um, money market accounts or CDs. We're comparing to things like that, that would be a place to store your cash. And so when we talk about competitive growth, we're, that's what we're referencing and comparing back to. Yes. I think what, what people, what people don't understand is that banks used to have to compete for our money. So they actually bought our money and how do you buy money? By offering an interest rate on the money. Mm-hmm. So if you, if, you take, if you bring your money to our bank, we will give you a savings account, a CD, a money market. And this used to happen quite frequently. Doesn't have, we will even give you some interest on the money you place in your checking account. Mm-hmm. Why did they do this? They did, did this for a business reason. Because if we can pay you 4% and then we can lend it out at 6, 7, or in the case of credit cards, 19, 24, 29%, Mm -hmm. we will make that arbitrage. We being the banks. We being the banks. So they're saying their cost is what they pay you. Their earnings are what they earn from sending out that money. Correct. So they're buying our money. I mean, it's literally what they're doing. They're buying our money. Mm-hmm. They sell our money in the form of what I just said, either a car loan, a personal loan, a signature loan, a home loan, or a credit card loan. So they're selling to Who would like to have this money for 7% to buy a car? I'd like to sell it to you. That is the, that is the uh, economic concept. Buy the money, sell the money. Buy the money, sell the money. And when you buy it for less than you sell, then you make an arbitrage, and that's a business. Well, when the Federal Reserve came a- around um, and they started pumping money into this, and they actually allowed these banks, and they've always done this, but they've actually lowered the requirements now, you, they can actually go for the overnight rate and get money from this Federal Reserve. 
the Federal Reserve has actually, uh, to try to control the money supply, they've actually uh, paid banks not to lend money and uh, uh, by actually paying them to store their additional money at the Federal Reserve themselves. So that is one of the reasons now that banks do not have to buy our money because they can just get additional money from the Federal Reserve. So that when people are always saying, why did banks stop? Why did banks stop buying our money for a higher price? Well, that was the reason. They don't need our money to actually then go out and make more money. They can get money from the, the Federal Reserve banking system. Ruth, I think that's a really key insight for somebody to realize. Again, we might like to think that the bank needs our paycheck to go into the savings account or the checking account so that they can have capital, but they don't. So that means it's not as valuable to them as, as for sure it's valuable to us. When your money is in your control and you have access and use of that money, you can use it as you like. It's way more valuable to you than it is to the bank. So when we're talking about a competitive growth rate, let's just put this in context here. If you put your money into a checking account or a savings account, maybe you could go to an online bank and maybe get in the ballpark of, I don't know, maybe close to 2% on your money, I think is the highest I've seen in current today's environment. But usually you're going to get much less than that. What, what, like maybe a half a percent? I think half percent at the time would be a, a good return. <laughs> right. Time, so this, this is a... Savings or a checking account. If you went to put your money in a CD, the longer term CDs are going to have a higher rate that they're going to pay to you. A shorter term CD is going to have a lower rate that they pay to you. But if you're going to look for an ideal place to store your cash that is not an investment that you can access and use, I don't know, maybe you could get in the ballpark of the highest that I've probably seen is in the ballpark of, I don't know, 2% max, right? Max, and that would be uh, with no other services. And also they would say a minimum amount and they would also say you have minimum to do transactions as well. Sometimes they yeah, limit your transactions to maybe six per year or three per year or something. Or actually require you to use your debit card so many times um, because they also get fees from the debit card. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of different um, re, uh, uh, transactions that you may also have to do in order to get that rate. So very good perspective here. So if you put your money into a whole life insurance policy, and again, we're talking about a specially designed high cash value policy with a mutual company, which means you're getting paid dividends as well. You could expect to see in today's dividend environment between three to maybe 5% rate of return on that cash if you look out 20 years. And I know that this seems maybe a little bit fuzzy. And so I want to explain exactly what I mean. If you put in say $10,000 today and 10,000 next year and 10,000 next year and 10,000 next year, you would look at how much rate of return, you can calculate the rate of return if you have a certain amount of cash value in say year 20 and you look back and say, what would these dollars that I put in, my premiums, what would I have had to earn on that money to get to this amount of death benefit or this amount of cash value that I can access and use at year 20? Then we're looking at, that would be, you would have needed this particular rate of return if it's 3%, 3% every single year from year one all the way through to year 20. And when we also say between 3 and 5% 
internal rate of return over 20 years. We're also saying that's tax free. So this is not where you would have to pay tax on that return, which essentially lowers your rate of return. So what I'm saying is that this is a net return of between three and 5% on a 20 year span of using your money or of putting your money into this type of policy. And this is proven historically as well. If you go back to maybe 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the dividend rate was higher on whole life insurance policies because interest rates were higher and you're seeing even higher growth rates on policies that have actually already been in place. So this isn't something just hypothetical that we're saying could be achieved. This is something that has historically been achieved as well. Yeah, and when people if people are wondering why can't you pin it down more between we say between three and five percent, it's because it has to do with your your gender, your habits, and and also the the uh, interest rate environment, which we all know is um, is it fluctuates. And Bruce, I'm really glad you brought that up because somebody putting a policy in place when they are very healthy and they're 25 years old is going to have a different growth trajectory on their cash value than somebody putting a policy in place when they're maybe not healthy, potentially were rated, maybe are in in their 70s. So you're going to see a different um, a different growth rate on your money when you look out at that 20-year or 30-year mark. We like to use 20 because life insurance, again, is meant to be a long-range planning tool. This is not something that you want to just think about. I put my money in and tomorrow it's an overnight success and I'm thinking about it in a one-month increment or even two-year increment. You really want to think about whole life insurance being this long-term wealth-building tool and that's why we use a 20-year trajectory. Anything else we want to say on competitive growth on cash value? No, I think it's pretty good. Awesome. All right. So advantage number three is unlimited access for your lifetime cash needs. And when I was putting this together, I really wanted to make sure that we didn't just say you can use your money because it is unlimited access and it is for your lifetime cash needs. And so what do I mean? What do we mean by that? Well, unlimited access means that you can access and use your cash value at any time for any reason. So it's unlimited because you don't have to ask the life insurance company, could you please give me my money? I'm qualified to get this loan from you because I'm going to pay it back because here's my income and here's my assets. They don't ask for any of that. They don't need you to prove that your ability to repay your loan. And let me just step back for a moment. The reason you have unlimited access to your money is through policy loans. And we've had other podcasts and videos and articles that we've done on this as well. But if you have say $100,000 in cash value, you can access up to $100,000 by a guaranteed policy loan, meaning you can go to the life insurance company and say, can you give me $100,000? Because I have this $100,000 in cash value, they're going to give you contractually because they are required to do so a policy loan, which is giving you their money up to the value of your cash value. They're going to then put a lien against your cash value, meaning it's not accessible to be used for something else until you repay that loan or it increases in value. And then your money continues growing, which is why you're getting uninterrupted compound interest and you're able to put your dollars to work in another asset. So that might be a, a real estate property or another cash flowing asset, or maybe it was an emergency and you borrowed against your policy to pay for some lifestyle expense as well. Bruce, is that coming through clearly? First of all, how you have unlimited access, and then I want to cover what lifetime cash needs means. Well, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's clear. I think people, a lot of times, we just say, why do they do this? It's very simple. They have to do it by law. 
Um, it's, it's part of the, in order to do business in the States, this is part of the agreement they make with the States is that this is a part of the contract. So it's not like, um, it's, it's not like they can choose to do it or not. If they do business in the States, they have to, they have to allow this. I've actually talked to uh, the heads of several insurance companies and they say they don't mind doing policy loans because they can actually get more income uh, from policy loans. Uh, most of the companies right now, the loan rate is 5% um, where they cannot get that kind of rate of return from bonds. So they don't mind doing policy loans. So they're happy to do that. So I, I think it's always great when you, when you, when you have a, a business that's happy to help you out. And then and the- I just want to add something to that. So if you think about on the back end, if the life insurance company is improving its profitability by extending loans to policy owners, then if you are the policy owner, you are contributing to the overall profit of and the profitability of that life insurance company, which then if it's a mutual company, which all the companies that we use are and anyone who is using this for privatized banking is using as well, that mutual company then returns dividends to the policy owners. So you, by borrowing against your policy and repaying that loan at interest, are contributing to the profitability of the insurance company as a whole, which then comes back to you in the form of dividends. So it's not paying yourself interest, but it is paying interest to the insurance company, which then pays dividends to you. Very good. And then uh, other things that people use this for is like uh, college savings. Oh, yes. Um, we also, you mentioned down payment for property. You can also use it for investable income. Um, there are people that do that. Um, I recently, I, I, I said this before, I recently uh, did a policy loan to invest in another business. Mm-hmm. And um, the idea is that I'm going to make more money on the business than what I'm paying on the, on the, on the loan. So I'll just pay my loan back with the profits of the business. Which I'll point out real quickly is you being the bank. If you have caught some of our previous episodes, you would have heard us say this as well, but maybe this is the first episode that you're hearing. And Bruce, now what you're doing is you're saying, well, the cost of my capital is the 5%. If I can go make 12% in this business, then I'm making, I, Bruce, is making this arbitrage and you're earning money on that money. And that's how you're making money. Correct. And then finally, uh, the the, the last thing I think we need people to understand is uh, the the repayment schedule is up to you. Mm-hmm. So not only do you determine how fast you pay it back, you also determine even if you want to uh, take some breaks from paying it back. Um, so you could you could start a repayment schedule, say three four hundred dollars a month. You do it for six months. Something comes up, cash flow is limited. You just stop the repayment. And then two or three months come about, you come into some additional money, and then you uh, can throw even more money or just pay it all off at one time. It's, mm-hmm. The flexibility of this is very, very great. You need a place to have windfalls. My wife and I both own several businesses, and so uh, at, on occasion, we have you know, uh, accounts receivable that come up and we get big chunks of money for projects that especially my wife has done. And so we just take that and then we just pay out big chunks of loan repayments mm-hmm. on, on the uh, schedule. So 
There's a variety of ways to do it, but you're in control. Bruce, I love that you share that. And I think what is most valuable about being able to have this cash value is that I could, instead of compartmentalizing my life and saying, well, here's my retirement savings, here's my college savings, here's my capital savings for buying real estate properties, here's my capital for buying businesses, you could use the same pool of money to do the same job, to do all of those jobs. Because if you take a policy loan and you re repay that loan, so what I'm saying here, here's your cash value. And if you put a lien against that with a policy loan, then it makes that amount of money not able to be used again until you repay the loan. But if you, here's your cash value and here's your lien. If you repay the loan, the lien gets reduced, meaning all of your cash value is freed up again to be able to be used for another purpose. So you could then borrow against your capital and put that into paying for your kids' college and repay that loan and then go use it and buy a real estate property. Repay that loan and then go use it to buy another business. You can recycle and reuse the same money over and over again. And so that gets you to turn your money more times or velocity of money. And it just gives you a tremendous advantage of being able to have this store of capital that you can use in many cases. And something just interesting that I'll point out about the 529 or college savings account as well is that life insurance, cash value of life insurance is not listed on the FAFSA which is your application for applying for student financial aid. And what that means is if you have cash value in your life insurance policy, that does not count against you and limit the additional capital that you can get for college funding. And so it's a really nice way to have an asset that you can use for college funding and still be able to qualify for maximum student federal aid. All right, let's go into the fourth advantage, which is tax savings. So Bruce, do you want to go ahead and share on this one? Yeah, I, I, I want people to understand. Let's just talk about cost basis. Cost basis is whatever you put into a financial vehicle, whether it be life insurance, mutual funds, stocks, uh, buying a home, a commercial, whatever you put in, um, you never have to pay taxes on that again. So if you want to just access that money back out, you can in the same way in a life insurance contract. However, what happens is, is that most people just access, uh, so because they, they don't want to interrupt the growth in a life insurance contract, they don't access whatever they put back in, they take a loan. And that's what we tell people you can do. However, I understand that people, they, they get queasy about taking a loan against something. So that's why I just pointed out the fact that you can take the money back out up to the cost basis. So then what happens is, and, and I haven't uh, done this yet because I haven't, I'm not old enough, but I know clients that have taken um, money all the way to the cost basis because they didn't want to have a loan later in life. And then after that, they just simply switch it to a loan. Now you can be, have loans the entire time if you want, but you can also switch it to a loan after the cost basis. So it will never actually be taxable and dividends and interests uh, uh, according to the tax code 7702 are not uh, taxable. So that's how you can actually have tax savings uh, from a um, life insurance policy. So always as a loan, you can have tax savings. You, can, you have tax deferred growth and you can access the funds tax-free. The most common way is just taking a loan because just like you're taking a loan out from your business, from your house, that's tax-free. But you can also just withdraw back up out of your cost basis. I'm sorry that got a little confusing, but uh, that 
that is, uh, that's just the way it really is. It's not the way that it always happens because we don't espouse that. But I just want to make sure people understand that they don't have to take loans if they don't want to, to get their money back out tax-free. Bruce, I think that's very well said. And I think, um, you know, pardon that discussion a second ago, but at the same time, I think it is really important for somebody to realize that you can access and use this money, even though it says it's tax-deferred growth in almost every case, as long as you utilize it correctly. And you would want to make sure you're going back through your agent, your advisor who helped you put that policy in place. You can almost always access all of your cash value in multiple ways without paying tax. And that's really the point here. Then also when the death proceeds or the death benefit pays out to your heirs, that's also income tax free. So you're having tax savings there as you're transferring and passing on that baton of your legacy. So there's just so many advantages with saving tax that you're able then to grow your wealth without having that tax cut in and, and shave off part of, those, part of that growth. So the fifth advantage then, we're getting close to the end, but there's so much value that we could still talk about. We're packing it into these seven advantages. Advantage number five is it's a gateway to income boosting strategies. And this is something we have not talked a lot about on the podcast up to this point. And the reason is that there's just so many things to share about privatized banking and whole life insurance. And again, it's not the one size fits all, end all be all product that does everything for you. But at the same time, there's so much advantage. Now, what do we mean by the gateway to income boosting strategies? And we're going to cover more of these in further detail in the future. But um, Bruce, let's just talk about what are some of the ways that you can increase your income in the future because you had life insurance in place? Well, I think this, but we may have missed the boat on this, uh, not emphasizing this over and over and over again. Uh, when you have a pool of money, when you have a pool of money, such as cash valued life insurance, it allows you to do other things in your financial life, enrich other things in your financial life. So one would be a reverse mortgage. A lot of people don't understand reverse mortgages. They, had, they got a bad rap in the late 80s and the 90s and somewhat through the 2000s too because they were a new product and banks did not actually understand the risk yet. So they did have some higher fees. Just like any good product, competition came involved uh, and, uh, or was involved in it and, and they've gotten a lot better. A lot of people say, well, I don't want to do a reverse mortgage because then the bank can take my house and I don't want to give up the house to my heirs. Well, if you have whole life insurance, what you can do is always just pay off the mortgage reduction. So in a reverse mortgage, what you basically do is you have um, equity in the home and you either can stop paying your house payment and it just accrues within your house, um, less and less equity going along, or the, the bank can actually pay you a monthly payment, mm -hmm. but they have a lien on your house. So that if, uh, if you die, if one spouse dies, there's still two people in it, the other spouse can still stay in it. The, the second to die spouse, the bank technically owns your home, but they can sell the home, and if there's a profit, part of the profit goes to your state anyway. But if you don't want to lose the home in that situation, you're okay. If you have a death benefit, you can pay the bank back off and retain the home if that's what you really want to do. So you actually can get income from your house with a reverse mortgage and still retain the property if you have a nice death benefit. 
So that's one thing. The, the next thing I think is what a lot of people don't, and I espouse this, is to, to try to delay your Social Security as long as possible. Mm-hmm. Because you get an 8% simple interest bump for every year that you do not take Social Security. So the earliest you can take Social Security is age 62. If you don't take it at 62 and you wait till 63, you get an 8% bump of income from 62 to 63. And then from 63 to 64, you get another 8 and 64 to 65 and so on and so forth, all the way up to 870. So you can actually get from 62 to 670, you, it's simple, so it's 8 times 8, you get 64% more. Um, plus cost of living adjustments and cost of living adjustments on a larger number are greater. So it's re and that's a lifetime payout where, so that's one other thing you could use your whole life insurance to do. And then you can fill the bucket back up in the whole life insurance with the, with the death benefit. And then the final thing you could do is, and we talk about this with people, it gives you permission to spend your money. We have a lot of great people in this world. Uh, you know, it always bothers me when people think there's so many bad people in this world. Mm. And I so don't it's a think mindset shift. It's a mind. Yeah, there's a lot of great people, and they want to help their children or their heirs. And they'll Absolutely. be sitting. They'll be sitting on several million dollars, and they're 78 years old, and they're like, "I don't want to spend too much money because I want to leave this for my children." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "No, let's let's." you have this whole life insurance that's going to fill the bucket back up. So let's go ahead and spend your money for the next 10, 12, 15 years. You'll be in your 90s. Yes, you may have gone from 2 million now to 750,000, but then when you die, that that death benefit's gonna fill it back up so your children will get additional um, money passed along to their estate. So it gives you permission to spend your money which is a freeing thing. And, and uh, oh, Rachel, I've been, doing this, I've been doing this a long time. And most children, they want their parents to spend money and enjoy their last parts of their life anyway. Oh, yes, absolutely. So, um, so everybody wins. You get to enjoy your life, mm-hmm. and you also get to pass on a nice legacy to your, uh, to your children or grandchildren. And a lot of people, it's not about the money even, you know, um, because a lot of people get weirded out about this. Like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to feel like I'm getting money from my parents. I don't really need it. It's not that. Your parents want to leave a piece of them and and Mm -hmm. money is a sign of value that they provided in this world. And so that you're going to continue to uh, live through them with that legacy that they provided. So Absolutely. that is a really important thing to be accepting of that legacy too. And don't just, I think, don't just dismiss it. Bruce, I think that was very, very well said. And I think there's just so many elements of that that are really valuable for the person having the assets and the person who's receiving the assets. So for both generations, the one who's building the wealth and the legacy or the generations that come after you that are going to receive your legacy. So give yourself that permission to spend your other assets. And life insurance can certainly as well be a source of income. You can take income from the cash value, 
through policy loans or withdrawals later in life, Bruce, as you were mentioning. And we would usually recommend, again, this would depend on your financial situation, your other assets, your strategy that's in place, what you're trying to accomplish. But usually that would be a last resort to draw income from, not the first asset that you want to take income from. So there's just, again, so many strategies surrounding this, but it is a tool that provides that gateway to have greater income from your assets in later years. So advantage number six then is privacy from creditors and lawsuits. And this is something as well that we really haven't talked about a lot, but that can be very important to some people. And so Bruce, I'll let you go ahead and cover this quickly here. But what does that mean to be able to have wealth that you're protecting from creditors and lawsuits? And how does, what does that allow you to do? Yeah, I think, we, I think this ought to be fairly quick because this is all state specific. Some states, um, all the money that is put into a policy is protected from creditors or any lawsuits. Other states, it's very minimal. And some states, it's, you know, in the hundred to fifty to $250,000 range. So it simply means if you were to have money into the cash value of these particular policies, then if you were involved in a lawsuit or if you uh, actually had to reorganize with the bankruptcy, then they, they could not access uh, the money that's in the cash value. So, and like I said, it's, we can't get into more specifics of that because every state has different laws on this. So again, if that's important to you, then that's a question you want to ask to an advisor who's helping you put in place a life insurance policy so you can figure out exactly how that applies to you. Now, Advantage number seven that we'll put as the capstone on this series here is that it's a legacy preserver. And we really want to talk about how whole life insurance specifically allows you to preserve your legacy and be able to use it for estate planning purposes and have this asset to pass on to kids. And I think the thing that's most valuable to me that really sticks out in my mind is that say you do have the house and say it's paid off and you want to keep that in the family or that's your number one asset that you want to pass on or maybe it's, and for many people, it is the, the house and the property or maybe it's that you have cash in a 401k or you have cash somehow in your investments. When you think about what your children will be able to use and value, usually it's not the house or the, the physical tangible um, thing that has um, emotional value to you. It might be something that you're emotionally attached to. Maybe the kids are even emotionally attached to it. But just for practicality's sake, if there's four kids, not all four of them are going to move their families back to wherever that location was to the home state where they grew up in and all live in that, that one house. It's just not even practical. So to be able to be in a position where you can pass on financial resources in your legacy that are able to be used and distributed fairly, which might not be equally, but fairly amongst your your children or your heirs or whoever you want to leave that legacy to, it's going to be more valuable to have resources that they can use rather than to have a house, which usually would end up looking like they're going to have to go figure out how to sell off your things, do the um, estate sale, try to figure out what's valuable and what's not and go through that and go through selling the property possibly for less than it's actually worth. And so even though we can be emotionally attached to that idea of having that physical property, usually for the children that are receiving your legacy and your, your estate, it's actually more valuable to be able to have financial resources rather than the house. 
Yeah, it's simply if you talk to any estate attorney, if you talk to any wealth planner, it's simply the most efficient way to pass legacy estate planning to the next generation. It's it's a, it's the simplest thing. They just they just write you a tax free check. Pretty simple. Houses have to be liquidated. Valuables have to be uh, decided who gets what and uh, for even 401k and um, non qualified money you have to pay taxes on. So it's just simply the most efficient way to do it. It's that it's really 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 that simple. So today we've covered the seven advantages of using whole life insurance in your financial strategy. And again, I'll just recap those. Number one is vault-like safety. Number two is competitive growth on your cash value. Number three is unlimited access for your lifetime cash needs. Number four is tax savings. Advantage number five is gateway to income boosting strategies. Advantage number six, privacy from creditors and lawsuits. And finally, seven is being a efficient legacy preserver. So overall, these seven advantages really put some power in your court when it comes to thinking about your financial life from a really high level perspective and saying, what do I really want to accomplish and what financial tools? Again, you, you said at the beginning, this is just a vehicle. This is one vehicle. And how can I do the things that I want to do best with the and get my dollars to go as far as possible. And whole life insurance certainly does these things very well. And it is a vehicle that can use that you can use to do all of these things. And so there's really a lot more to learn and to discover about whole life insurance. So don't let this be the end of your journey. Hopefully it opened your insight and really um, gave you some curiosity about discovering more about whole life insurance and being able to use that in your quest for more knowledge on life insurance. So I do want to let you know as well that we have a quick and easy privatized banking guide for investors that is available and you can get that on themoneyadvantage.com slash privatized dash banking. We'll have the link in the show notes. And then also we are just about to release a course on privatized banking that really shows you the up close and personal, really what it means to feel and get in that driver's seat of life insurance. What does it look like? How does it perform? How can I use it? And really be able to understand it much more fully. So those are some things that you can have at your fingertips as resources if you are wanting to go down that journey of understanding more about privatized banking. So Bruce, is there anything you want to share before we wrap up today? No, I think... Um just understand making making sure you understand that it's not this is not magic this is simply a contract that has all these seven different advantages absolutely thank you bruce and in closing please remember success leaves clues so model the successful few not the crowd and build this life and business that you love discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at 
hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated Member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and Investment Advisory Services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and Registered Investment Advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.